Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Uh, it's just a lot of fun to be back, uh, to be back with you and to worship with you. It's a real vulnerability in the service this morning um, that Faith and, and the team have led us into, and I don't want to I don't want to screw that up. Um, uh, so if you don't mind, and this sermon this morning has a, has a lot of vulnerability in it because Jesus is speaking through his friend Paul and saying to us, y'all, get along. Because the world is counting on you getting along. And as I was praying through and preparing this in the light of everything that's been going on in our country even over the last few months, but also in the church's response to what has been going on in the country over the last few months. I can just hear Paul heartbroken in prison, unable to get out of prison and bang some heads together in Jesus' name, <laughs> saying, I beg you, walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. Live out what has been poured in. Live out what has been spoken in. To you, be who you are, and pay whatever price you have to pay to accomplish that outcome, because the world is counting on you getting it right. That's the intensity that I, I want to bring this morning, and the vulnerability of it, um, because as you know, we've been in in this series uh, over the last few months, uh, taking a break here with Easter and some of the other other things. But a couple of weeks ago. Back end of chapter three, in in this exploration of kind of vintage faith of what the 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 faith crafted by the beautiful Creator God is. What does this artisan? What does this craftsmanship? What does this craftsmanship that that crosses the line into deep beauty and artistry? What does that look like, as lived out through the ordinary? clay pots that we are, right? And that's the, that's the dynamic that we're invited into. I'm going to be in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I think uh, you know that Paul's letters are divided roughly into two sections, usually pretty close to in half, and this one uh, uh, more, more so than some of the others, in which in the first half, he outlines his theology. Who are we? Where are we going? What, what does it, and in, in Ephesians particularly, there's a very careful crafting of that. He starts off with identity in Christ that you've already heard alluded to a number of times um, in, in our conversation this morning. He, he talks about the, the fact that this is not uh, something you can do on your own. This is something that God does in and through you. You can cooperate with him, and certainly he invites that cooperation and, in fact, requires that. Uh, if you want to be in on what he's doing in the world, you, you want to cooperate rather than resist, rather than push back against the work of the Spirit, because what God is up to is far grander, far glor more glorious, far more beautiful and powerful than anything you can possibly ever imagine, and that is the reconciling, get this, of all things to himself through the work of Christ on the cross. All things, all of the brokenness in all of the broken places in every 
dark corner of the universe. He is at work to restore, redeem, rebuild all things so that it will once again resound with his glory and to his honor and praise. That's what he's up to. What, can I just say, you have nothing better to do than to partner with God in that outcome, in the tiny little sphere of kingdom that you call home. Because that kingdom over which you have authority and rule will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. For he is the king of kings. D does that make sense? So this is what Paul, now, now here's the truth. That sounds lovely in theory, Paul. You sitting in the comfort of your Roman jail cell can wax eloquent about the beauty of reconciliation. But Paul, you don't really know what it's like to live with my roommate. You don't really know what it's like to worship with, with people who twitch in a different rhythm than I do. You don't know what it's like to work with the people that I work with. You don't know what it's like to be married to the person I'm married. You don't know what it's like to be, to be, to be, to be. And Paul says, oh, really? Well, then you figure it out. That's what he's saying here. Romans, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 says this. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, Live a life that is worthy of the calling you have received. I'm going to watch where I'm going so I don't fall off the edge here. Um, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then I'm going to steal this text from next week. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And the reason I want to, I'm going to just snapshot verse 7 there, is that it speaks to the wonderful diversity that emerges if we get unity right. You don't get diversity by concentrating on diversity. You get diversity by concentrating on unity that makes it safe and possible for you to be your wild and crazy self in Jesus' name, right? Because without the unity, you're just another wacko out there. Does that make sense? How many have a wacko in your family system that is made possible because, don't be pointing at people, <laughs> that is made possible because they're family. And if it wasn't for family, and if you don't know who that person is, um, okay. So he begins with this, with this, and I notice Paul is a master rhetorician. He was trained classically. He's got the master of rhetoric down. And notice what he does here. He just pulls out the stops. He says, as a prisoner, and he's not interested in sympathy, but he is interested in the awareness that, that he has paid a price for his commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that price has ended him up in a, in a Roman jail cell where he will not ever be. Can you imagine what a waste of gifts it is for this massive church planting evangelist 
to spend the last few years of his life in prison. What a waste of God to allow something like that to happen. How many hundreds of churches could have been planted had Paul been let loose on the world? He was on his way to Spain. Can you imagine how different the Iberian Peninsula would have been had Paul gotten to Spain? Can you imagine? Of course, we wouldn't have this letter, nor Galatians, nor Romans, nor Philippians, nor, as it turns out, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Timothy. Or Ty we wouldn't have half the Old New Testament, but we'd have a lot of churches that didn't know what they were doing. So, by the way, the reason I say that is some of you are going through impossibly challenging and difficult circumstances right now, and you are already prejudging them as bad. You don't get to do that. You don't know what wonder God might be working in the middle of this pain that he could have saved you from and didn't. Not because he doesn't love you but because he wants to love you in and through this. Please remember, Jesus was not resurrected from death. He was resurrected through death. Massive difference. Lazarus came back from the dead. Jesus took death by the throat and even redeemed it. If he can do that with that, this is the point of resurrection. This is why I love what Brooks says and others who announce we come together every time. And sometimes it becomes part of our liturgy to celebrate the risen Christ, yada, yada, yada. No, 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 no. We say that because that reality changes all other realities. Right? Does that make sense? So, so here is Paul uh, in the middle of seeing his story redeemed, a story that he might not have written for himself, but one which was written for him, and seeing it redeemed, and in that place of pain, writes out to this church that he loves very much. Remember, the book of Ephesians is written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, centered around Ephesus, not just the local church there. And he says, I beg you, I beg you, strongest word he can use, to live a life that is worthy of the calling you have received. He pulls out the stops. And please notice, this is not for his own benefit. Paul is using the tools of rhetoric, not so people can accomplish things for his sake, but because Paul is willing to recognize that the, the use of this tool, the use of the artistry of rhetoric, to bring the church to its place where it can be properly useful. It's not manipulation, Right? If the goal is not the betterment of the person who's manipulating, Paul wants people to understand. Folks, this matters. This matters. All that we've been talking about in the previous three chapters are not nice theories about which to get together on Sunday morning and talk. This changes the reality of our engagement with the world. He wants them to live out, and this is the other piece that I want to say on this verse, live out the reality that has been spoken in, not live towards it, live out of it. This is already true. You have already been called. This is not so that you're called. It's because you are. It's not so that you can be useful. It's because God, want, it's, it's, it, it, God wants you to be useful because you already are what he said you are. Does that make sense? You've got to learn to live who you are, and this is what he invites us into. Now, the problem is this is going to cost you a whole lot because we want, he, he invites us into the, to, to be the new model of what humanity looks like, what it looks like to be a human being because this is what disciples are, right? 
We're, we are followers of Jesus who was the new model of what it meant to be human. So the more human I become, the more Christ-like I become, the more fully myself I become. All three things are all true all at the same time because they're all saying the same thing. The more like Christ you become, the more fully yourself you will be. The more fully yourself you are, the more like Christ you will be. In either case, the pursuit is to become fully human. And the reason is, is we need a new model for humanity. That's what Paul is inviting us into and why it matters so much. Now, this is what it will cost you. He says, be completely humble. That's what it will cost you. Folks, this is challenging for us. Because he's going to talk about how this works out in marriage in, in, a, in, in a few chapters, where he's going to say, y'all, submit yourselves to one another, husbands to wives, wives to husbands. That's what it's going to cost you to have a kind of marriage that echoes the calling that you have had on your life. Does that, does that make sense? And, 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 and we don't even know how to merge well onto the freeways. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, speed up for crying out loud. Get up to pace. That's why they call it an on-ramp, for goodness sake. Slow down. No, 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 no. I'm in my lane. Imagine that extrapolated out to the rest of your life and why Paul says, number one, be humble. Don't forget who you are. You're nothing but a lively pile of dirt. Genesis chapter two, by the way. Right? God took the dirt, breathed into it the breath of life, and that's you a lively pile of dirt. So don't forget who you are. Don't stay grounded. That's all those words are the same words, right? And because what gets in the way of our ability to submit to one another, what gets in the way of the unity that he's going to be pressing towards here? Pride gets in the way of that. Thinking more highly of myself than I ought to think or thinking more lowly of myself than I ought to think positive pride, negative pride, just it's, it's not humility to think more lowly of yourself than you want to think. Humility is thinking accurately of yourself so that over time you cannot think of yourself at all. And it's just as easy to serve as it is to lead. You don't do life by comparison, you do life by cooperation. You, you think about this, and, and we have hundreds of illustrations that make this point for us, whether it's a sports team in, 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 in that, that has learned cooperation in, in the, the, the structures of passing. It doesn't matter. It does not matter who puts the ball in the basket. Our team gets two points. Does that, does that make sense? And, and we can think through this in all kinds of ways. So Paul says the first strategy, the first thing it will cost you is you have to be humble. And correlate to that is you have to be gentle. Which means when you have strength, when you have power, when you could actually accomplish your outcomes, you use that to serve, not to insist on your own way. This is what it's going to cost to, to, to be gentle, to use that strength and submit it to the elevation and lifting of one another rather than the assertion of my own preference and privilege. 
And remember, can you imagine what it was like to hear this message land in Ephesus, the most racially, ethnically, socioeconomically, religiously diverse church in the history of the world? You have slaves worshiping alongside their slave owners. You have Gentiles who have been regarded by Jews for centuries as less than human, leading the worship of Jews who are disciples of Jesus. Can you imagine? Put yourself in in South Africa in the 10 minutes after Nelson Mandela was released from prison and the pushback to apartheid. Put yourself in in the American South as, as Jim Crow gave way to the crazy of the 50s and to the legalization of integration, if you will, in the 60s, and how hard it has been for us since that decade. Put yourself in those kinds of environments. No wonder, Paul says, if you have privilege, if you have power, if you have position, if you have place that you could use to to, to manage your superiority, don't do it. Use instead that position, that power, that place, that privilege, whatever it is, use it to serve. Be gentle. That's what the word means. Use that strength to the service of others. You can see why unity is, not, is such a bad idea. It's going to kill you. Right? Anybody want to guess why the last half dozen words Jesus spoke to his disciples in the upper room were, get along, love one another. He's not concerned about the cross. That's that's dialed in. He's not concerned about resurrection. He's concerned what happens when we hand off this mission to these 12 guys who on their way into dinner that night had been fighting about which of them was the greatest. Really, Jesus? You couldn't have chosen better guys? Like who? Y'all? This is the point, right? As long as this is about somebody else, we're fine. But if it's about me and my roommate, not so much. Not so much. And Paul says, no, this is what it's actually going to cost you to live out the word that has been spoken in. He invites us furthermore to be patient. This is an interesting word. This, this word means literally long-tempered. Not short-tempered. Long-tempered. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now this, I think, probably applies to everybody but Dutchmen and others who are genetically blessed with quick tempers. Anybody want to get in on that? Because I, I, I am the son of a Dutchman, therefore I have a, have a buy on this one. It doesn't apply to me. And others of you, perhaps so, if you're Hispanic, perhaps it doesn't apply to you quite the same way as well. Or if you're fill in the blanks, because we all have our, our proclivities, do we not? Uh, is everybody doing okay? Anybody wish I'd go away for another six? Don't come back. Anyway, here we go. Because here's, here's the challenge, right? Because we all have excuses. When I lose my temper, it's for a very good reason. They need to be told. They need to be put in their place. They need to know what boundary it is they have crossed and the severity 
of that boundary crossing to my right and privilege. They need to know this. Because, and if nobody, if, if I don't do it, nobody is going to do it. And they will go through their life, fat, dumb, unhappy, violating boundaries the whole way. Somebody needs to help that boy. <laughs> Anybody else have a very good reason for every time you lose your temper? And Paul says, sorry, you don't get to do that. If the outcome is going to be oh, a life that is lived worthy of the calling. You don't get to do that. Why? Because you're with people like me. And I'm with people like you. And if I have a quick temper, the circle of my unity will get smaller and smaller and smaller the older I get as you tick me off in one way or another. And you will. Right? Am I just talking to me here? <laughs> because this is, this is what happens, right? This is what happens. And then he goes on. He, get, he makes it even worse. It's bad enough when he just says, be patient, giving the time necessary for God to do his work in somebody else. I mean, not everybody can be the quick study that you are. Not everybody gets perfection as rapidly as you do. Not everybody rises to moral perfection the way you have in your 22 years. Not everybody gets there as fast as you. Some of us take a little longer in the oven. Some of us take, it takes a while to bake. You, know, you all know what I mean. We didn't come out perfect like you did. So be patient with the rest of us bozos, because it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while for us to be formed to Christ's likeness. Right? And the mark of your being formed to Christ's likeness is that you will let us take the time that it takes to become Christ-like. So if you become impatient, you need to go back in the oven. <laughs> because you're not quite, you're only half-baked, as it turns out. You're, <laughs> you're, not, you're not done yet, right? So having said that, he makes it worse. Look, put up with one another. Because sometimes patience isn't, because sometimes, I, I can be patient as long as I see progress. You, you know what I mean? I can be patient. Oh, yeah, she's trying, he's trying. Yeah, we're, oh, oh, okay, God, God bless them. Bless their hearts. Y'all know what, it, you know, bless his heart. You have those sayings, right? Just, oh, they'll, they'll be all right. But Paul recognizes there are going to be people who are not going to make any progress according to my standards of progress. And what am I to do with those people? He says, put up with them. Bear with them. Bear with them. Can you imagine how that might work? Paul has just recognized, I'm not going to like everybody in church. And as hard as it is to believe, not everybody's going to like me. I know. Why is it necessary that we learn how to do this? Because sometimes that putting up with is what gets you through the hard middle on the way to reconciliation on the other side. And if you don't put up with, if you don't bear with, if you don't hang in there when it's hard, you don't get the opportunity on the other side of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of restoration. You don't get it because you've already cashed in your chips and gone home. So Paul challenges us with this, with this, with this, this hard work of chosen love in which love supersedes annoyance. 
Paul is aware. He's, you read his letters. There are people who annoy him. There are people with whom he is frustrated. There, and, I'm, and I can almost guarantee you there are one or two that were frustrated with Paul. He was in prison for crying out loud. How annoyed do you have to be with somebody to put him in prison? Right? But it, and it, personality, temperament, and, and down on through the list of usual suspects. This is why God has given us the gifts of grace and forgiveness. Wow. I can't imagine living in a world without ready forgiveness. Can you? I mean, it's just, otherwise it would be just metal on metal all the time. And please notice, forgiveness not deserved, but offered first before asked. That's how God forgave you, right? He didn't forgive you when you asked. He forgave you. And you participate in the forgiveness he has already given. Right? And, and you, have to, you have to think through this. Why is this so important? Why does this matter? Well, because the world is going to be reconciled. And it needs a model of reconciliation. The world... All things are going to be redeemed. It needs a community of people who in their life together, as wildly divergent as they are with one another, have figured out how to get along. Have figured out that the the things that separate them are not as important as the things that unify them. Have figured out that of course I can be brothers with people who voted the wrong way in the election. Of course I can be a sister or brother, uh, a loved one of someone who disagrees with me about fill in the blanks. If we don't learn how to do that, if we can only hang with people who are naturally affinity to us, it will be a very tiny world because I can almost guarantee you, without knowing any of you individually or personally, I can almost guarantee you there's something about you that will tick off everybody in the room in some way. And it'll be a different thing for different people. It's like when I, when I do pre-marriage counseling, I tell people, just get ready for it. Just get ready for it. Because every, every marriage has between five and ten irreconcilable differences. On your 50th wedding anniversary, you will still be fighting about that if you don't not fight about it anymore. If you just learn to live with the crazy that you're married to. <laughs> it's not going to change. You cannot. (laughs) Anybody want to guess the answer to that question? Because you need that crazy to moderate your crazy. Right? Jude and I are today celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary. We still got about three or four hours, so don't don't get too excited. It's, the jury's still out. Um, that said, uh, there are no two people in the world who are more divergent and different than she and I. I am an introvert; she is an extrovert. I am an ISTJ; she's an ENFP. Right? And I realized that my life would have been a whole lot easier had I just married somebody else as would hers have. Why in the world did Jesus give me this stunningly beautiful woman? Why did he do that? Because he loves, loves, loves me. 
And here I am, 40 years later, a completely, in many ways, completely different person because I married her and because she didn't give up on me because forgiveness was part of her love language because I'm not going anywhere. Deal with it. <laughs> Is the strategy... I mean, uh, can I just extrapolate this out for a, a minute? Um, my dad, when he died, um, um, had his funeral attended by people with whom he had been friends in the same church for 50 years. And I remember that church was not perfect. I grew up there. It was not perfect. He saw pastors crash and burn with affairs. He had people, board members and elders who did um, stupid things with money. He had all these kinds of things go, go, go on. You don't go to church because it's perfect. You go to church because you're the church. And I remember one time, just after the, one of the pastoral crash and burns, I said, Dad, do you, do you think you might look for a new church? And he looked at me like I'd crawled out from under a rock. <laughs> Why would I ever do that? This is my church. This is my church. He'd seen pastors do outrageous things, uh, pray for him, right? You don't get to 50 years if you quit every time. It's hard. Or every time somebody ticks you off, or every time they, I, I can't remember the last time I was in a church service where they sing my favorite songs. <laughs> What's up with that? Doesn't age have privilege? Yes, and the privilege of age is submission to the younger to empower them into their lives. Right? So, so Paul says, I invite you into this. It's, it's this, this, this pattern of friendship and, and community. Because you don't, you don't search around to find community. You make community. D do you know what I mean? It's like... Where do I fit? Well, make a place for yourself. Why? Look at what he says. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Please notice, it is the Holy Spirit who produces unity. It is our job to do everything in our power to support and maintain it. Now, I know there are exceptions. I know there are people who are challenging and difficult. I know there are people who are buzzsaws that if you keep walking into them, you will keep getting destroyed and decimated. I understand that. But can we just not make the exceptions the rule? Can we just say, let's do the best we can do with what we've got, knowing that in some cases we're the dandelion in somebody else's lawn? Right? Can we, can we lean into this? And, 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 and here's the why. Because there's only one body, one spirit. There is no churches. There's just church. There is only one body of Christ. 
with varying parts that each do their own thing uh, in, in accordance and in alignment uh, to God. There's one God and Father of all. So, so there is this, this one hope for which we all long, to which we are all pressing, one Lord to whom we submit, and our submission to him aligns us to each other. There is one faith, one reality, one truth that we stand in. We will have arguments till the cows come home about the variations at the edges of our theological perspectives. Here's a note to self, just as a practical reality. Not everybody needs to know what I think. It is possible to have a thought and not speak it. (laughs) That might be the price of unity for some of y'all. Right? So we have in this church, we we have progressives and we have conservatives. And we have people who don't even know what those labels mean or care. We have Republicans and we have Democrats. We've got Greens. We, and, we, and we have people who look, who, who look at the, how could you have? And die, no, 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 no. They're entitled to their crazy like you're entitled to yours. What you're not entitled to do is because of who they voted for, writing them, voting them off the island. You can't do that. This is one of the reasons why Jesus, who could have commented frequently on the political realities of his day, went instead for the heart of the issue underneath those political realities. Do you see? It's really easy to bag on somebody at this level. Once you get down below the surface, we learn there's just somebody like me in there who is an accident perhaps of birth or as an accident of training or exposure has come out the other end of the belief system. We, we, don't, get to, we don't get to choose family that has been chosen for us. So it's vital that we get this right because we are the hope of the world. All you have to do is look at at social media and see how uh, the, the, the breakdown of community, let alone civility, we're not even nice to one another. We're, we're kneecapping each other on Facebook in Jesus' name. We can't do that. We must We must mind our own business, which is to love really, really well. We've got to do better than this because we've got to learn to live in love with those with whom we disagree. Here's the question I'd like to leave you with as we conclude. Do you trust love as much as God does? He thinks... It's the only force that will accomplish his outcomes. And he could force outcomes. He's trusting love and invites us into that. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.